All right, well, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I just want to welcome you all here uh, this morning. Uh, real quick, I just love uh, that song, that song in particular, that one that we ended on, uh, because if you know me, I do not have a sweet-sounding voice. Um, and so at the end of that, that, that is my prayer, that that it is sweet, and it is sweet to the Lord. It may not be sweet to the rest of you, uh, but it is sweet to Him. Um, we are going through a series this morning. Uh, it is uh, Enjoying Life. And if you're new to Bethany and, and this is your first morning here, you're joining us in the middle of this series. I want to say welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, we love that you're here. And uh, we hope that you are encouraged uh, in some way this morning. Uh, and in this series where you find us this morning uh, is in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 through 6. And if you are new to the Bible, well, first I'll say, uh, if you wouldn't mind, turn there with me. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, uh, you'll find uh, Ecclesiastes is right in about the center of your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, come see me afterwards. I'd love nothing more than to give you one. Um, but you will find Ecclesiastes, if you find a big book called Psalms, uh, you will then turn a couple pages to your right. You'll go through a book called Proverbs, and then you will come to Ecclesiastes. And we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 through 6 um, this morning. And where we are with this story or, or this, this um, series, this book, is uh, Ecclesiastes is written by a man named Solomon. Uh, he is one of the wisest men ever to walk the face uh, of the earth. And Solomon, if you're not familiar with him, he was a king uh, in Israel and he had made this request of God. He had asked God for wisdom uh, to lead his people. And so God granted him his request and, and blessed him with wisdom. And one of the things that Solomon does is he sets out on this, uh, I'll say, journey to find the meaning of life, purpose in life. And many have done that since him, but I think it's important that we look back uh, to him because he has a lot of things uh, to offer us. And so that's where we're headed this morning. And on his journey, uh, as he walks to find the meaning of life, he, he makes a lot of observations. He kind of does two things. He, he observes people and the way they live. And as a king in in Israel, he has that ability to kind of pull back and look out and see the world from kind of a high standpoint and see what's going on. And he observes a lot of evil in the world. But then he does something else that I find really interesting is that he indulges himself into whatever his heart desires. So whatever he wants, he basically does. Whatever he wants to do, he does. Whatever he wants to buy, he buys because he has that power. And all of this is in a search for the meaning and purpose in life, And what he comes up with, uh, this recurring theme that keeps happening throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is life is basically uh, meaningless. All this stuff we chase after, all this stuff we do, it's meaningless. And so whether it's money or your status or where you are in life, your position in life, it's kind of all meaningless is what he comes up with. And he comes at that because of this, this point of logic of we all return uh, to the earth from which we came, basically dust to dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We're all destined to die. And it's been said uh, several times from this stage, but every single one of us uh, will face death at some point. So welcome to Bethany. Hope you're encouraged this morning. Glad you're all here. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of depressing. And you're probably sitting here and looking and saying, this series is called Enjoying Life. Are you serious? Uh, but Solomon gets there. He does. And, and you, I would just encourage you to stick with him. 
And that's what we're going to do. And, and I don't have the pleasure of bringing us to the end. That'll be Pastor Adam. Uh, but we're going to jump through the middle of uh, what Solomon has to say. And he makes a lot of observations. And so kind of set up the message this morning. We're going to walk through chapter 4, a little bit of chapter 5, and look at some of those general observations that he makes. But then uh, after we get through that, we're going to jump into the heart of what I want to get to. And that is in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So let's just look at a couple of these observations that he makes, and then we will go from there. So he observes this thing, the, the brokenness in the world. He observes the brokenness in the world as kind of the first thing that I notice that he sees. And there are several, like I'll put, I'll call them subcategories under this. And the first thing that he notices or that he observes is oppression. Oppression of people. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4 with me, verse 1. He says this, and again I looked. This is Solomon looking out. He says, again I looked and I saw the oppression That was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. And they had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. And they had or they have no comforter. And if you look in our world today. uh, You don't have to look very far out of our western culture. You could probably find it in our western culture. To find oppression. There are governments today in our world that oppress their people. Uh, I just had the privilege uh, this Friday night. uh, I was with some of our students. We were doing something called the 30 hour famine. And so we watched a documentary called 58, and it is based off of uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58. And I would encourage all of you at some point, it was a tremendous documentary, even if you're not a documentary person, which I am not personally, it it is worth watching. And one of the things that they walk through is they walk through this, this issue of oppression in the world. And one of the things that I was unaware of that really was brought to my attention was something that is taking place in India right now. And I'll just mention this uh, to kind of set this up. But they followed a man in India, uh, in a very poor section of India. He lived in the, the woods, out in the bush, in the rural parts of India. And he was, they were running out of food. His family was running out of food. And what happens a lot in India is when you run out of food, you have nowhere to go. Uh, you sell yourself basically into slavery, but you don't know that. All right, we know that, but they don't know that. So what happens is they, there's a lot of stone quarries in India and granite specifically, and the the stone quarry owners look and prey on these men like this that are looking to support their family. And what they do is when you come to them, if I was that man or this man that came, he comes and he says, "I need a loan. We need we need money to live." And so the the stone quarry owner will give you money, but then he will charge you interest beyond what you will ever be able to repay. And the amount that he pays you per day, which is about 60 cents a day, is less than the interest he's charging you on the debt that you owe. And so in other words, what you've done is you've sold yourself and your family into oppression, into his hands. And he works in this stone quarry and it's not with heavy equipment. It's a chisel and a hammer. And his children are working right beside him. Five, six, seven-year-old children working beside him in a stone quarry. And he will die and his debt will pass on to his children. And here's the worst thing that I saw. For about 600 U.S. dollars, you could set him free. You could free him and his family. Just $600. But in his lifetime... Working in that stone quarry, he will never make close to $600 to get himself out of slavery. 
So you don't have to look far to make the same observation that Solomon makes here in Ecclesiastes 1, oppression. The second one, envy and jealousy. And this is one that you certainly don't have to look outside of our Western culture here to find. Look at verse 4. And I saw that all the labor and achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What he's saying here is that many people, what they succeed at or what, they, what drives them is not their own ambitions, but what other people have. And they see what other people have and they want that. So they chase after it and it's out of envy and jealousy that so much uh, is achieved. And you can see that in our culture uh, today for sure. The next one is loneliness. Loneliness. Look at verses 7 and 8. And I saw something meaningless under the sun. And there was a man all alone, and he had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. He said, for whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business, loneliness. It's interesting with all of the, the tools that we have in our world today to connect with one another, whether it's Facebook or email or Twitter or Instagram, There are so many of us today that feel this sense of loneliness. And Solomon makes the observation. And one that's connected there, um, he talks about in verse 8, he says, And yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. And if you jump over to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, you will find this. It says, Whoever loves money never has enough, has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. And so he makes this observation that you can have a lot of money. And I will be the first one to admit to you, money makes life easier. It does. Money makes life easier. If you don't have to uh, pinch every penny and jump from store to store to chase after the sales or clip coupons, it's easier. Okay, if you can just go to the store and buy the things you need and you don't even have to think about, uh, do I go to Walmart or do I go to Giant? You just go to the store that's closest to you. Money can make things easier. But what he talks about here is its inability to satisfy. And as you look at some of the most prominent people in our world today, those that have a lot of money, many of them, uh, whether I'm thinking specifically of actresses or athletes, uh, actors, uh, singers, Many of them, when they fall kind of out of the limelight and they're not making all that money anymore, it is a short distance uh, to poverty, to bankruptcy. Because that money, has had the, it's, it doesn't satisfy them. And so there's this hole in their heart and they continue to chase after different thing and different thing and they don't find contentment. And money has this inability to satisfy. And you can see it in our world today. And so with all that said, he sees all of this evil... And then he makes this great statement, this such, such encouragement that comes out of this. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> Go to chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. And I declared that the dead who already died are happier than the living who are still alive. Well, that's nice to know. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So basically what Solomon tells us is better to not even be born. And as I thought about this week, uh, that passage and all of this stuff that I, we've listed, I thought, you know, it is true though, that I have, at times I've looked into the eyes of my children 
the innocence that is still there in them. And I grieve, I mourn over the evil that they will see. The things that will be done to them. I mourn over that. And so I can understand why Solomon makes this statement that it's better not even to be born. Because it doesn't matter what decade you've been, you were born in. You too, if you've been around long enough, have seen the things that Solomon is pointing out. Now, luckily for us, not all of Solomon's observations are negative. Uh, jump forward to verse 9 in chapter 4. Verse 9 in chapter 4. He says this, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls, and he has no one to help him up. Also, if you lie down, or if two lie down, sorry, two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, many have gone before and said that this is a, that Solomon is pointing to Jesus here and a, and a relationship with Jesus. But I would suggest to you that I don't think that's what Solomon is getting at. Solomon is simply, as he has been in the past, simply making observations about life. And he's saying it is far better to have somebody to walk through life with than go through life alone. That's all that he's saying. And so this is what, he, what I came up with off of what he said, that life is best lived out with friends. Life is best lived out with friends. And maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's uh, family members, but life is best lived when we live it together with one another. And I'll just share a quick story about this. Uh, there's really only one time, because if you, for those of you that don't know me, I'm a, a very relational person. I enjoy people. I like being around people. And so I would say that I agree with this statement wholeheartedly because I enjoy living life out with, with all of you. And there was only really one time in my life where I felt completely and utterly alone. And it was in 1999, after I graduated from Garden Spot, I, I set out to go to East Stroudsburg University, and I wanted to play football there. And so that was my goal, to play football and uh, to get an education at the same time. My goal wasn't to get an education. My goal was to play football, but I thought you could do both at the same time, so I might as well do it. And... So what happens with athletes when you go uh, to preseason in college, uh, you go before everybody else goes because you have to go and train and get ready for the season. So I went in early August of that year. I went to East Stroudsburg, and I didn't know a single person that was going to be there. And so I was placed on a team with about 100 guys, uh, not one of which was really a true believer in Jesus. Right? So I'm on a team with about 100 guys, not really— not any of them are really following Christ. Some of them said they did, but didn't show up in their actions. And so I'm physically being beaten. I'll say that, beaten. Because when you go to preseason and you play football, you practice three times a day. And a lot of the guys are bigger than you are. And so I'm physically worn down. My body is hurting. And emotionally, I'm starting to feel the strain of, I don't have anybody around me. I don't have anybody that I can, can connect with, can touch base with, can even pray with. And so I was feeling alone. And so we get to Friday night of the first week. Friday night of the first week. And one of the rules the football team has is that you're not allowed to leave the dorm after 10 o'clock. All right? Because they, they decided, they made up the rule that nothing good happens after 10 o'clock. So maybe some of your parents are sitting here saying, I agree with that. That's right. Students are saying that's not true. It's not true. But that was their rule. 
Okay, 10 o'clock. So uh, my roommate, he was a junior, because they had this idea that if we pair upperclassmen with underclassmen together, that's going to make them feel better, more encouraged. That did not work, okay? Because my roommate, it's 11 o'clock at night. He says, hey, I'm going out. He said, I'm like, where are you going? You can't do that. He's like, ah. He's like, it doesn't matter. I'm going out. Don't tell anybody that I'm gone. I'm like, all right, whatever. I'll go along with that. But it's 11 o'clock at night, and I'm sitting there in this room, and here I am, this 19-year-old, tough football player, and this overwhelming sense of loneliness just hits me like a flood, and the tears start to run down my eyes because I was alone. And if any of you are sitting here this morning and you've experienced this or you're experiencing it now, you can relate to what Solomon is saying here, that life is better lived out with someone else, to have somebody to lean on. And so I think that's simply the observation uh, that he is making. So, all right, I want to move on beyond some of those general observations. I want to keep two things in mind that Pastor Adam mentioned last week. And I think as we move through the book of Ecclesiastes are so important that we keep in mind. And it is this. Two things. First, God exists. You have to remember that as Solomon writes this, he writes this from the standpoint that God does exist. Now, I I acknowledge that some of you here this morning, you may be sitting here and you're wrestling with that idea of does God truly exist and can I trust him and is he real? And I would say thank you for coming. Thanks for being here. Uh, But you need to know that as we go through this book, the writer, Solomon, is saying God does exist. All right, he writes as, with this as an assumption in his mind. The second thing he assumes is that we should revere God, have a respect, an adoration for him. Okay? And what I see happen in our world today a lot of times is a lot of people will get upset with God and they'll make accusations towards God. Or they'll observe things like evil in the world and they will make accusations towards God. So, God, if you existed, this evil wouldn't exist. Or if you existed and you loved me, you wouldn't allow that or this to happen in my own life. But what's interesting to me is as Solomon writes, he comes with this respect and awe. He makes observations, even observations that we don't necessarily like, and I don't think he liked them. But he doesn't make accusations towards God. And I think that's really important, especially as we move forward here into into chapter 5. Now, I want to say two things as we enter into this. First, my intention this morning is not to beat us up. I really want you to know that. We are going to get to there. And you're probably sitting here thinking, when are we going to get to the enjoying life part? Okay? And I think we're going to take a journey down through the valley first before we come out to the other side. But my intention this morning is not to beat us up, but to push us forward. To look out and say, okay, from this day forward, how am I now going to live my life because of what God has done uh, for me. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is if you're in this room this morning and you are a believer in Jesus, what I'm about to talk about might sting a little. It might sting a lot. But again, my, my intention is not to beat us up. And if you're in the room and you're not a believer in Jesus, uh, you're kind of off the hook uh, for now, but I'd invite you to, to listen in. Because here's the thing. If you're in the room and you say, I believe in Jesus, then you need to know that God is actively involved in your life. God is actively involved in your life. It doesn't mean that one time he was actively involved in your life. God is actively involved in your life right now, today, this morning, as you sit here. 
And he's given us some things. He's given us uh, the word of God, the, what we call the Bible. He's given us his word so that we can have an accurate picture of who he is. And we can have an accurate picture of who we are. So he's given us that. He's given us Jesus. That even though we've made a lot of bad decisions in our life, even though there's sin in our life, he's given us Jesus to forgive us of that sin, to wash us clean, to make us new. So he's given us that. This, the, the third thing I'd say that he's given us is he's given us his Holy Spirit. He's placed his Holy Spirit in our heart that we might have the power to represent him here on earth. That we might have the power to step out and do some incredible things, not for our glory, but for his glory. But what I find is for some of us, many of us as Christians, that we confess Jesus with our lips, but practically we live out as atheists. And what I mean by that is we live as if God doesn't exist. So with our words, we acknowledge God, but with our actions, they don't quite connect. They don't quite uh, add up. And I think Solomon gets us into that in chapter 5. So let's go there now. Chapter 5, verse 1. And here's the first thing. Sorry, this slide's a little out of order. We'll get there. There we go. First thing, prayer. <clears throat> prayer. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps. When you go to the house of God. All right, there's the first thing I notice. It's not an if. It's not an if, it's a when. So when you go, and I think that what he's getting at here is when we go to God in prayer, go to the house of God to listen. That's the next thing he says. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God because God is in heaven and you are in earth, on earth. So let your words be few. Let your words be few. Now this is something that I am honestly, I will confess to you this morning, I am not great at this area of my life, but God has brought conviction to my heart, that I need to get better at this. That I need to get better at this. Because if I believe that God is in heaven and I believe that God is actively involved in my life and I believe that God has something here for me to do, then why is it that this doesn't show up in my life more? And why is it that I don't spend more time, as Solomon suggests, listening to what God has to say? Because if you were like me, I often end up going to God to say things. God, I have some things on my heart. I want to say some things. And that's part of it. But how much do we actually listen and receive? I want to share a story quickly with you um, that will touch on this. And it is kind of what has exposed my heart to this uh, very thing. Uh, a few weeks ago, Aaron and I had an opportunity to go on a date night. And if you have five children or if you have one child, you know that a date night is very valuable. Okay? It's very valuable. And so it's very rare that we get these opportunities, but we took advantage of this one. And, and sometimes as parents, you kind of, you forget like, okay, we're all by ourselves tonight. So what are we going to do? Like, that's not normal. Like normally we have things to, to take care of. And so we looked at each other, we're like, where are we going to go? And so we decided that we were going to go out to eat, and we went to the Outback. Um, and I will tell you, Outback is a great restaurant. I really like it. Uh, my birthday's coming up, so if any of you are looking for ideas, uh, Outback gift card, that would be fine. Um, but 
So we went to the Outback. We had a tremendous experience. It was a really good experience. And um, we get done there. And we're like, well, now what are we going to do? And so my wife has this wonderful idea. She says, how about we go uh, just spend some time praying and, and just hearing from God? Because we had some things we were dealing with, some issues. And so we decided, all right. I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. But where do, we, where do you go to do that? Because we can't go back to our house. Our house has five kids, and that's not going to happen there. So I'm like, all right, how do we do that? And so we decide on our property there's a spring house. Uh, it's, we live on a farm, and there's a little spring house. And we decided, let's go back to the spring house. So this is what we did. We have a free night, and we come back to our own property to spend that free night. I know, it's crazy, but that's just how we are. So we get back to the house. And we have to sneak into the spring house because if our kids hear us, the night is over. Like they will come, they will find us, they will ruin it. So we tiptoe into the spring house and we spend some time there just praying and seeking the Lord. And honestly, it was probably about 10 minutes. This is not a lot amount of time, a large amount of time, but 10 minutes we just spend in silence seeking the Lord. And so when we're finished, I quickly ask her, so what did you hear? Because I didn't want her to ask me the same question. So I wanted to ask her first. So I said, what did you hear? And she started sharing some things that she felt like God was speaking to her about in particular. But then, of course, she looks at me and said, well, what did you hear? Um, you know, I, I didn't hear anything because my mind was too busy racing. I was thinking about the steak that I just ate at the Outback. And I was thinking about what I'm going to do tomorrow. And I was thinking about all these things. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm so bad at just stilling my heart and listening to what God has to say to me. But, and maybe that, maybe for, maybe God works in different ways for different people. Because maybe for you, it's not just sitting and being quiet and just listening. But one of the ways that God really speaks to me as I I looked at this passage and I look back over my life, one of the ways that God really speaks to me, and there's actually a verse that talks about it, be still and know that God is, God is God. Be still and know that he is God. And that verse to me, what happens to me when when God speaks to me the most is when I can still my heart and I can come to this, this book that God has given me and I can read it and say, God, what do you want to tell me today? What do you want to say to me this morning, this evening, whatever it is? And that's when I feel like God speaks to me the most. But I am crazy enough to believe that God actually wants to speak to us. And I want to show you another passage. It comes out of the book of Hebrews. It's the one I fast forwarded through here. It comes out of the book of Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. And it says this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, that high priest is Jesus. He has gone before us. He intercedes for us at the hand of the Father The great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. So Jesus has come. He's been tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. That's key. Jesus did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. What does that word grace mean? We use that word a lot in the Christian circles and in church. But what does grace actually mean? Well, what it means is to, to receive unmerited favor. All right? It's to get something that you don't deserve. 
So we approach God to receive something that we don't deserve. Right? Then he goes on. He says, approach the throne of grace, God's throne. Approach God with confidence. Why can I approach him with confidence? How is it that me, this sinner, this guy that has uh, some issues in his life, how can I approach God, the maker of heaven and earth? Well, the answer is because of Jesus. Because Jesus was without sin. And so when I put my faith in Jesus, Jesus takes upon himself my sin, my mess. And what he does in exchange is he hands me his righteousness, his perfection. And so as I stand before God, God doesn't see me. He doesn't see this mess. What he sees is Jesus. And that's why I can approach God with confidence. And so then it goes on so that we may receive mercy. Well, what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And I deserve, I deserve hell. My actions throughout my life would suggest that I deserve hell. But because of Jesus, because of the work of Jesus, I can receive mercy when I approach the throne of grace. And what does he say? When you, you, when you go to the throne of grace, you receive mercy and find grace to help us in our ta- time of need. Excuse me. So we can receive mercy. And I believe with all my heart that God wants to speak to us. God wants to be actively involved in our lives. But as I said, when I started this, we live, we say we love God, but we live sometimes as practical atheists. Because when you think about how much time do I spend actually praying to that God that I believe in? How much time do I actually spend listening to receive something from that God that I say that I believe in? It's a challenge for me, for us. So let's move on. The second area that I think Solomon gets into in chapter 5 here starts in verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. The temple messenger is just the priest there. My vow was a mistake Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Then verse 7, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Now, he talks about vows here and how we shouldn't make vows that we don't plan on keeping. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, when I think about that, I think about marriage. That's the first place that my mind runs to. Because in our culture, it's one of the only places where we make a vow, a covenant with our spouse and with God that we are going to keep, right? And so he goes into this section about vows. And I think when we talk about marriage, uh, this, this section in particular is so important because when I stood before God on July 14th, 2001, and I stood in front of my wife and her family, what I did was I made a promise to God. I made a promise to God and I made a promise to her and I made a promise to her family that I was going to love her as Christ loves his church. And now that's a statement that's used a lot. But what Christ did for his church was he died for his church. He made the ultimate sacrifice for his church. 
And so when I made that promise to, to God and to Aaron, what I was saying was, God, I promise that I will love her, that I will sacrifice her, that I will lead her, that I will pray with her, that I will have eyes for nobody else but her. That's the promise that I made. And that I was going to do everything that I could to live out that promise and see her, um, see her enjoy life. That's the promise that I made. And I'm afraid that in a room this size, that some of us have forgotten that promise that we made or else we're choosing to ignore it. And some of us, we can, we st- we can stand here and we can look at what our spouse is doing and we can say, yeah, but if they just didn't do that, if he would just stop that, then everything would be all right. Or if she would just stop pestering me all the time about that certain thing, then it would be all right. But see, it's not about them. It's about you. It's about the promise that you made, that I made. And God takes that promise very seriously. And the reality is, for some of us, we live, and this is where that thought of practical atheism comes in, we're living in a place where we may not be divorced yet, but we live completely separate from one another. We sleep in different rooms. We argue all the time. We never pray together. We never celebrate each other. And it's the place where we, we live and we look at the things that our spouse is doing and we want to make excuses and we want to make clauses. We want to say, but if. But on the day when you stood before God and the day that you made that vow, you didn't throw those clauses in on that day. So why is it okay now? Why is it okay to look at what they're doing and say, no, because you're doing that, I'm not going to. The divorce rate in our country is roughly 60%. That's the best estimate I could come up with this week when I looked at it. Now, the divorce rate in the church, among those that believe in Jesus, that attend church, that serve in a church, and profess to, to pray and read the Bible regularly, the divorce rate is 38%. It's 22% better. But I think it's 38% that still grieves God's heart. It's 38% that still grieves God's heart. And I think the world looks in on us and they say, I hear what you're saying about Jesus. I hear what you're saying about this, this God that brings forgiveness and offers forgiveness and love. But I don't see it in your actions. Now, If you're in the room this morning and you're in that situation, maybe you are sitting here this morning and you're divorced. You probably feel like I just punched you in the stomach. And what I said in the beginning was, my intention is not to beat you up. My my intention is not to heap more shame or guilt on you. Because the reality is that you know far better than I do the pain and the hurt that exists in divorce. You know the reality of the scars that will last a long time. And my prayer for you this morning, and my prayer for us, is that Bethany Grace Fellowship would be a soft place for you to land. A soft place where you would find mercy and grace. And that you would find love and acceptance. That's my prayer for you this morning. But as I said, it's not about the past now. 
It's about the future. So what am I going to do? How am I going to live? How am I going to respond to what God has done in my life? How am I going to now live that out? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. So look at verse 7. Because I don't think, honestly, I don't think that Solomon is just talking about marriage here. And see, if you're in the room and you're not in that situation, you're feeling like, but I don't think that Solomon is just talking about marriage. I'm not even sure if he had marriage in mind when he talked about vows, but that's where my mind went. So that's why I talked about it. But I'm not sure that that's exactly what he had in mind. But I think that there's something more here, something even deeper in all of this. Oh, there's the prayer one. We'll jump in. Second, our actions. Okay. Our actions. How we respond, okay? My thoughts and my words are meaningless unless I live them out. My thoughts and my words are meaningless unless I live them out. And here's the thing. I can know truth up here. I can know truth in my head. But if I don't live it out, if it doesn't show up in the way that I behave, does it really mean anything? Does it really mean anything? Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, I started a series with the students. And we were talking uh, about, well, I gave them the option. I said, you guys can send in any questions you want to send in. Send in some questions. We'll talk about it. Nothing's off base. Well, one of the things that, that came up was this question of, why are Christians so hypocritical? If you're not familiar with what the word hypocritical means, it just simply means to say one thing but then do another. Say you're against something and then not live it out. Or say that you're for something but then not live it out. That's what hypocritical means. And if you would go, on, go home today and Google why are Christians so, one of the top ten things you'll find is hypocritical. And the reason is because we don't live out the things that we say. We don't live out the things that we say. And so I want to just take a second here to walk through a couple areas of life where I think this, this really happens. Because this morning, if you were here and you are a believer, as I've talked about, if you're a believer in Jesus, and maybe you were baptized uh, into uh, the body of Christ, what I would tell you is when you were baptized, what were you doing? You were making a proclamation, right? When I was baptized, I said to the world, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus and I'm part of his team. That's what I did when I was baptized. And... So do my actions reflect that? So I want to walk through a couple scenarios with you. So maybe you're a believer in Jesus, but are you okay? Are you okay with fudging a little extra time on your time card at work? Or maybe taking a little extra long at lunch? Because whether you believe it or not, others see it. And what they see is that the Jesus that you follow doesn't have integrity. Because you may not say that with your words, but what your actions show is something different. Or maybe you're competitive. You're ultra competitive in everything. And I'm not talking about just sports. Solomon mentioned it a little bit earlier, the envy and jealousy. And it's hard for you to celebrate when others succeed in life. And you stand at a distance and you look at what they have. Maybe it's their success in their job. Maybe it's success in their marriage. Maybe it's success in their children. And you look at them and it's hard for you to celebrate the things that they are doing well. Because you want it for yourself. And so when you're in private circles, 
You'll talk about it. You'll talk about how it irritates you. You'll talk about what they do, how that irritates you. And it's a spirit of competition is what it really is. But what I would ask you this morning is the Jesus that you represent then envious and vindictive. Is that really the Jesus that you want to show? Because that's what you're showing in your actions. Or maybe it's that person that you just can't stand. And you're really angry at them. You actually, if you're honest, you hate them because of some things they said about you. Or maybe they insinuated about you and you're not even sure. So is the Jesus that you believe in, does he hate them too? Would he not forgive them either? Because that's the Jesus that you represent. Or this one, your kids, they just don't follow the rules. And you get so frustrated, so angry. And at times you lose it, you blow it, and you say things that you know you shouldn't say. You call them names that will leave scars for a long time in their life. It's the Jesus that you follow or the Jesus that they see is a controlling, angry Jesus. Because that's what we're representing when we do that stuff. And the last one I'll say is maybe you're a person that you pray before meals all the time. And so when you're out in public, when you're out at a restaurant, you you take the time to pray and thank God for the things that he's given you. But if that waitress doesn't bring the steak out just the way you want it, or that side order wasn't quite right, She's not getting a good tip. So the Jesus that you believe in then is cheap. Because that's the one that you represent. Jesus himself talked about this. In John chapter 8, 31. He says this. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The key here is hold. If you hold to my teaching... He doesn't say, if you know my teaching, he says, if you hold my teaching. And the Greek word there would better be translated abide, to live in, to continue in. So when we take the truth of what God has told us about himself, of what God has told us about uh, us, when we take the truth of who Jesus is and we begin to live, live that out and it shows up in our everyday actions, that is when we will truly know the truth and the truth will set us free. But it's not just saying it, it's living it out. And you're smart people, you know this. Because you see these kind of things in other people and it frustrates you. But my challenge for us this morning is are we brave enough, do we have enough courage to hold our life under that microscope, that same microscope that we put other people's lives under, can we put our own life under it and say, God, what is there? What's really in there? What's really inside this heart of mine? And am I honestly willing to open it up and say, you know what? Yeah, there are times when I blow it. There are times when I blow it and I need to go back and make it right. There's times when I deal with that spirit of competition in my heart and I need to plead with God and ask him to forgive me and help me not to have that spirit of competition in my heart. See, these, there's so many areas of life that this can show up. It can show up in relationships. It can show up in business. It can show up in, in money. And you might look up here and you might say, Chris, what you're talking about right now is perfection. 
And I might be stepping on your toes a little bit, and I've already stepped on my own, so I guess it's okay. But you, you might look up here and you say, you're talking about perfection, and it's really not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being consistent. And there's a difference between being perfect and being consistent. Because here's the thing. All right, so there's a famous statement in Scripture. It says, it is far more blessed to give than to receive. And as a Christian, I would say, I believe that with all my heart. Maybe you do too. But am I willing to open up my wallet and say, I actually believe that. And I'm going to live that out. I'm not going to hold my money so tight. I'm going to give to those in need. Because that's what I say I believe in. But if it doesn't show up, how can I say that I truly believe it? Or how about this one? How about this one? I blow it. Make a mistake. I say something I shouldn't say. And I know it. I know it hurt my spouse. I know it hurt my kids. I know it hurt my coworkers. But the pride is too great in my heart to go back and say, you know what? I thought about what I said. And I just want to let you know that I'm, I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me for that? It's not dependent on what they do. It's dependent on me. And though I, in that moment, my actions may not have displayed Jesus, when I come back and ask for forgiveness, because what I'm talking about is consistency, when I come back and ask for forgiveness, I'm displaying Jesus. I'm living out the gospel. Or maybe it's that bitterness that's in your own heart towards that person that did something to you 10 years ago, but you just can't let it go. But you say, it's good to forgive because Jesus said it, so I have to say it. But do I actually believe it? Can I actually let that person off the hook and say, you know what? It's okay. It's all right. I forgive you. Because that's living out your faith. It's living it out. And the last one I'll mention, and it comes in, it'll take us to the end of where we're going. The last one I'll mention is living with a heart of gratitude for the things that you've been given. A sense of contentment for what God has blessed you with and given you. And not looking to others to say, boy, I, if only I had what they had, then I, life would be better. If only my kids acted like their kids did, then life would be better. Have a heart of gratitude and contentment for what God has given you. Because truth alone does not transform us. But when I can live the truth out, that does. And when others see this in me, when they see me living the truth out, when they see me doing the things that I say I believe, and now I'm actually doing them, it will make a huge impact in them because they will see the difference in us. The world doesn't want to hear what we have to say. They want to see what we can do, what we do with our hands, with our feet, with our mouth. Because here's the reality, folks. Here it is. The truth that I live out is the truth I really believe. It's the truth that really has touched the core of my heart and now it's coming out in my actions. So I want to bring this to a close. And we're coming out of the valley now. 
You're probably sitting there thinking, boy, this was heavy. But we're going to come out of the valley. I promised you I would, and I'm going to hold my promise. I'm going to keep my promise. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5. How do we do this thing, enjoy life? How do we enjoy life? And this stuff that I just shared, it all plays in. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. Solomon makes another observation. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor. I think that's funny that he adds that word. Find satisfaction in his toilsome labor. The toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is the gift of God. This is the gift of God. So, in closing, when I can recognize my position, when I can recognize that God is in heaven and that I am on earth, and I can recognize that I can come to him, I can come to him to receive mercy. I can come to him to receive grace. I can come to him for the strength to live out what I say I believe in. I can find enjoyment in this life. When I can come to him with not looking at these things as a burden, not looking at money and my job and my life as a burden, but looking them, looking at them with a different perspective and saying, this is a gift that God has given me. The food that I eat this afternoon, the food that you're hungry for right now is a gift that God has given you. Enjoy it. He even mentions drink there, and I won't go down that road, but it's a gift. Or work to consume my time. How many of you think of your work as a gift from God? How many of you think of it as a gift? But it is. It's a gift that God has given you. And so, when I recognize my position, when I can approach God with a heart of gratitude, and I can ask him for help to help me live out the things that he has, he has given me, that he has said to me, when I can come to him and, and find that grace and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance, and when I recognize that with a heart of gratitude, I can live that out. It changes the way I live my life. When I'm not pointing the finger at God, but when I'm accepting what he has given me and saying, God, thank you so much for what you've given me. So my challenge for us today is is simply this. It's simply this. To depend completely on the God that we profess to believe in. Depend on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. To then live that out. To ask for his help to live it out. And then enjoy the things that he has given us. Because God has given us life to enjoy it. So love Jesus and enjoy the things that he has given you. Let's pray. Father God, I, I do come to you again. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that you have given us things that we can uh, find enjoyment in. I thank you for gifts like food and work. Uh, Lord, I thank you for friends, for family. God, I thank you for this body of believers here. Lord, for this church. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to find 
uh, the mercy and the grace that you have for us. God, help us to approach you with boldness and with courage. Uh, Help us to find uh, forgiveness as we do that. Lord, help us to then live out the things that we say we believe in, God, and forgive us for the times that we don't. In Jesus' name, amen.